Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for, of this podcast. And with me today, I have Ben. Ben, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit, Ben, about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, went to Mississippi State University. Uh, from there, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, where I received uh, an outstanding um, and at the same time, I met my wife, Christy, there. At the end of that time, uh, I started thinking about doctoral work, and I was initially interested in John Bunyan and his pastoral theology. And through that, kind of migrated from Bunyan in the 17th century to Thomas Boston in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, I uh, encountered some, some biographies written by this guy named J.C. Ryle um, about some leaders of the evangelical revival. And became fascinated with him and ultimately went on to, to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky to uh, to do a PhD in church history uh, and focused on J.C. Ryle. My wife and I, like we mentioned just a moment ago, just celebrated our 13th anniversary on June the 6th. We have two kids, uh, two wonderful guys, Henry Ryle Rogers, who is seven, and Hugh Thomas Rogers, who is four. Um, I currently pastor a small church, a New Home Baptist Church, which is in Mendel, um, which is just about 50 miles south of Jackson. And I teach Bible and Latin at Christ Covenant School. And um, that's that's what I've been up to. I'm, I'm currently working, um, editing and introducing a um, a new edition of Ryle's book on preaching simplicity, which is due to be out in September. And after that, I want to uh, return to John Bunyan and think about John Bunyan's pastoral theology, particularly the pastoral theology of the Pilgrim's Progress. And so I hope to begin work on that this summer and get finished with it, maybe within a year, but um, don't not quite sure since I, I teach. Um, life accelerates considerably when we get started, and so usually my, my writing and study time is diminished considerably during that time. Well, those sound like very fascinating projects, in particular John Bunyan's Pastoral Theology. Um, I'll be excited to read that for sure. Well, he's, he's a delight to... Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, as you know, is such a rich book, and it's full of pastoral theology if you've got the eye to see it. It's, uh, that's, that's really what I want to explore in the coming weeks and months. Wonderful. Uh, well, can you uh, please tell us about your book, A Tender Lion, The Life, Ministry, and Message of J.C. Ryle, why you wrote it, and how is it being received so far? Sure. Well, I wrote it because as I got to know Ryle better, I realized a couple things. One, that he had been underappreciated as a subject of historical inquiry. So if you look at his peer, Charles Spurgeon, um, a name would be well known to, to all your listeners. When he died, roughly 19, 18 or 19 biographies were written about him in the year he died. Since Ryle's death in 1900, only about half that many have been written about him, and, and he was considered the, the Anglican Spurgeon. And so Ryle was a figure who I thought deserved more attention than he got, and I got to know him better. I realized he's such a fascinating figure. He's involved in everything in the Victorian church, and so he, he is a, a great 
great person to get to know personally, ministerially, but he also gives us a great insight into all that's going on in the Victorian church world. So that's that's why I got into how I became interested in Ryle, and um, and that's why I, I wrote uh, this work. This work was originally my doctoral dissertation, and uh, we cleaned it up and got it ready for a more popular audience uh, last year, and it came out in January or February of this year, and I think it's been received well. Um, from what I hear from Reformation Heritage Books, it, it's, it's done well, so been a great blessing to get to know Ryle and to help others get to know him as well. Yeah, well, it doesn't read like a, a doctoral dissertation, so that that's good. Um, <laughs> that is good. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I've, I've read quite a bit of Ryle's work. Um, as I mentioned before we recorded, uh, I've read Holiness probably a handful of times at least, and I've read uh, The Simplicity in Preaching, young, uh, his work to young men. I, I don't even remember how I, I was thinking as you were talking talking about how did i get into that i don't even know uh find ryle probably through reading spurgeon and uh, others john bunyan thomas goodwin um i started reading i started reading these guys probably in my 20s um maybe before i don't i don't really remember um i'd probably have to really rack my brain but about that but uh I really appreciated your book. I appreciated the way it's laid out. It's it's easy to read. It's accessible, and uh, I enjoyed it. So well, great. I, you know, one of the things I think about Ryle is that if you like the Puritans, you'll love Ryle because Ryle Ryle takes Puritan theology, Puritan spirituality, and he puts it in direct, accessible modern English. So when you read when you read the when you read Holiness like you've done, and, and many of your listeners will have done, now just look at the footnotes. It's John Owen. It's John Bunyan. It's uh, just a whole host of of you know it's the who's who of the Puritans. And Ryle has Ryle has read them. He's digested them, and he's communicated their ideas in a a simple, forceful, clear, winsome way. And so that's that's one of the reasons um, I think Holiness has done so well. Because he's he has distilled Puritan spirituality, Protestant theology, and communicated it as you know as clearly I think as anyone does, especially in his generation, uh, to a whole new audience. And the Puritans were incredibly unpopular in Ryle's day. I mean, the Ryle's contemporaries associated Puritans with with regicides, with king killers, and no monarch has been more popular than Victoria was. So you know. The, Ryle was popularizing Puritans, writing about Puritans in a day when Puritans were not well-liked. And even Ryle's evangelical contemporaries in, in magazines like the Christian Observer criticize his uh, fascination, his love of, of Puritans. They like his emphasis on the Reformers. They dislike his, his interest and his emphasis on the Puritans, who they tend to regard as radicals, enthusiasts, and, uh, and king killers. Isn't that interesting? Because where did the where did the Puritans get their ideas? They got it from the pure. They got it from the reformers, not not the other way around. You know that. Right. That, so that's that's interesting. That's interesting. It is. It is. It is. Um, who exactly is J.C. Ryle? J.C. Ryle, such an interesting figure. His his grandfather got rich in the silk trade um, at the end of the 18th century. He lived in Macclesfield, England, so I think Northwest England. And his grandfather was, was just a, he, he's somebody who deserves uh, a doctoral dissertation about. He was a close friend of John Wesley, and John Wesley preached from his doorstep 
uh, in Oak and Air to a large congregation in Macclesfield, and just a remarkable man, a spiritual giant. I think he was the first Methodist mayor in England. Um, so just a, a public servant, a devout evangelical, uh, but his father, Lyle's father, um, inherited that love of public service, certainly that love of business, but not his spirituality. And so Ryle, despite his grandfather's deep spirituality, um, grew up in a rather unspiritual home. And he lived there, he grew up there, he went on to Eton um, and Oxford, where he distinguished himself as both an, an athlete and a scholar. At the end of his time at Oxford, he experienced an evangelical conversion, a very famous one now. Uh, he was studying for his uh, final exams or for his honors examinations. He was very downcast and discouraged. He walked into um, a, a church that he couldn't even remember later on in life and heard someone read, the, the lector read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 uh, in a very remarkable way. And he said that was it. That was the moment when, um, you know, he, he was, that was either the moment of his conversion or the closing in of his conversion. He said in his autobiography that, you know, by the end of the year he was, he was a Christian, and in another place he said he was actually converted in that service, and that sent his life in a, in, a, in a somewhat different trajectory than it was going. He was headed into politics before that time. He, his father was wealthy. He was a, an heir to that extensive estate, and it was just assumed he was going to follow his father in business, go into politics, but then his father was bankrupt. And if you've ever watched you know, or read a, a Jane Austen novel or know anything about that world, world this is this is an era before limited liability. So if you went bankrupt, everything had to be sold. Um, your house wasn't protected. Even your clothes weren't protected. And so everything had to be liquidated. And not only did they lose money, but the loss of status was almost equally as, as devastating. So uh, at that time, bankrupt people who went bankrupt were considered crooks and thieves. And so Ryle's social connections were severed. His political career was over before it started. And so he just says, well, I've, you know, I was shut up to going into the church. So he went into to the ministry of the Church of England. Now, now Ryle's story is not one that I would commend to people uh, considering entering the ministry. I'm not sure that that's the, the pattern of the paradigm we should encourage. But nonetheless, God did amazing things with him. Uh, he went, he is first, uh, he was a curate in New Forest, out in the middle of nowhere. His, um, the, the rector of the church that he served was gone for about half the time. And so Ryle was preaching about four times a week. And you got to remember, he, he wasn't planning to go to the ministry. Um, he hadn't been trained as a preacher. And so his early preaching was terrible by his own admission. And he tried all these pulpit experiments. He tried imitating the famous ministers of his day and tried preaching those to agricultural, preaching those sort of sermons in that sort of style to agricultural laborers. And they just went straight to sleep. And so Ryle, through a process of trial and error, found his voice, learned to be simple, short, direct, clear. And by the time he figured that out, um, he, he was filling up the church every single week. He moved from New Forest to, to Winchester, ultimately landing in Helmingham. And that's when Ryle became a, a, a more national figure. So I think the mid-1840s to 1860 or 1861, that's when his writing career began. Um, he began reading the Puritans extensively because he had more free time on his hands. Uh, he was preaching not only in his church and filling it up, but being invited to preach in other places and um, making a name for himself by writing tracts. So he, that's initially how Ryle came to fame as a writer, is he wrote evangelical tracts. Now, 
when you hear tract, or at least when I hear tract, I think of, you know, those things that uh, sometimes people will give to a waiter at a restaurant, right? Those, you know, they're trifold little uh, sheets of paper that have a simple gospel message that's probably, what, 200 words long, something like that. Uh, that's not a tract that I was writing. I was writing 60-page tracts, 90-page tracts, 30-page tracts. And if you've ever read Ryle's books like Holiness um, or Old Paths or Practical Religion or Knots Untied or, or books of that nature, The Upper Room, all of those are examples of tracts that Ryle wrote and then were later kind of repackaged in, in book form. And 1860s, he, he's kind of moving up in terms of the, the Church of England's evangelical party. He's moving up the ranks. Uh, he goes to a place called Stradbroke in 1861 and is there until he becomes Bishop of Liverpool. Uh, when he comes to Stradbroke, that's when his ministry becomes, he becomes a national player. So he is no longer just a, a influential evangelical voice. He is the, uh, he is the influential evangelical voice in the Church of England. So he is involved in every controversy, every fight, um, every debate, and he's usually the, the leading voice, the leading man for uh, his party. And uh, in 1880, he becomes the first bishop of Liverpool, which uh, it's hard to, I try in the book to, to, to let the reader know something of the, the monumental task in front of him. I mean, by the time he gets there, he is in charge of 1.2 million souls with, I think, 400 ministers at his disposal. Um, and Liverpool, by all accounts, was the, the worst, um, the worst of the industrial towns of the industrial age in terms of crime, in terms of poverty, in terms of, in terms of drunkenness and all sorts of just social ills. Liverpool had them all to the excess. And so Raoul, as the first bishop, trying to figure out how do you minister to, how do you provide pastoral and ministerial oversight to this many people under these circumstances. And so that's what he spent the, the last 20 years of his life doing uh, with limited resources, with constant criticism, uh, facing all sorts of personal challenges as well. And uh, he passed away, went on to be with the Lord in, in 1900. Mm. So I think that's a, maybe that's more than you wanted, but <laughs> a, a sketch of, of Ryle's life um, uh, but, from beginning to end. That's, uh, that's really helpful. Oh, why does is, why is J.C. Ryle's work continue to be so influential? One is that Ryle influenced people who then exercised a lot of influence. So um, I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who was responsible for getting holiness republished in the 1850s, uh, 1950s, excuse me. And if you look at, you know, think about influential ministers, both Anglican and non-Anglican in the last 50 years, and you, whenever they give a, a, an interview or an article saying, well, these are the books that influenced me most. I mean, Ryle is almost always in my list, from uh, J.I. Packer, uh, who was deeply influenced by Ryle, and then in turn influenced many others, to uh, even more influential ministers today. So I think on the one hand, Ryle influenced influential people, and they in turn point people back to Ryle. But on another level, and probably more significant level, uh, Ryle's writings are in some sense, timeless. They capture timeless biblical truth. Uh, they uh, capture timeless Protestant truth, timeless Puritan truth. And what Lyle's real contribution is, he's not a, a, an innovator in any sense. I mean, think about the title of his book, Old Path. He's not trying to do anything new, but what he does, and he does so well, is that he takes and distills biblical truth, Protestant truth, Puritan truth, and, and repackages it and distills it for 
circumstances with incredible, simple, clear, straightforward language. And so that, I think, more than anything else, is why he sticks around. Because, uh, you know, if the Puritans are right and their take on the Christian life is actually the way the New Testament describes it, uh, you know, I can think of nobody better to describe Puritan spirituality and this biblical spirituality than Ryle, who does it with such simplicity, such clarity. Um, you know, if, if the Puritans, I mean, if the Protestants were right about the way justification works uh, and the way God justifies sinners, uh, Ryle does a phenomenal job of explaining justification to, to people in modern, simple, forceful, clear English. So I think... Uh, his clarity as a theologian, uh, his style of writing, um, plus the, the, I think the influence of his ministry, and I think he, he exerted a tremendous personal influence in his own day, and I think that, that even his personal character continues to, to influence others down down through the ages. So that's that, those would be one of the three things I would think. You know, he influenced influencers. He's a great, he's a phenomenal communicator of timeless truth, and his personal example has inspired Christians and ministers Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, How can J.C. Ryle's crucified style preaching help pastors grow in their own preaching today? Well, if you find yourself as a a preacher like Ryle did back in 1844, where you have a hard time keeping the attention of your congregation, then then Ryle's Ryle's experiments, his pulpit experiments, is what he called them, I think can really help you learn to uh, grab and keep people's attention. So for the last few months, I've been introducing and editing a new um, a new edition of his book, Simplicity and Preaching, a few hints on a great subject. And that's really Ryle's, this is how I did it. Right? I mean, he, he wrote that in 1882, and the con- and that, that timing is really important because Ryle has just become bishop of this massive diocese that has so many people, so few ministers, and he wants to teach his ministers how to get and hold people's attention. And if you want to learn to get and hold people's attention, well, learn from Ryle. I mean, Simplicity in Preaching is a phenomenal book about how how to do that. And again, I think, you know, one of the things teaching, teaching middle schoolers, um, you know, it's one thing to know theology well. It's, another, it's one thing to know biblical theology well. But I think, can you communicate that simply and clearly to a middle schooler? Um, that's really a, a really interesting test, or it has been for me. And my study with Ryle has helped me, I think, as, a, as somebody who teaches young people uh, five days a week during the school year to, to be simple, to strive for simplicity and clarity in my teaching, not to, to make things confusing, but to make them simple, straightforward, easily easy to grasp, therefore easy to respond to. Well, I, I think that Ryle is really instructive for the reason that you're you're saying because earlier you were even talking about the way that he writes, you know, simply and clear and those kind of things and, and, and in plain language. And I would, I would argue that, uh, that, that is our need today. You know, we have all sorts of people that are, you know, the statistics tell us that they don't understand what they believe and, and why it matters. They don't see the connection between their convictions in their daily life and, and more, sure. you know, so if you're a writer out there and, and want to really make a difference in people's lives for the kingdom, you know, write in plain language uh, for the average person in the pew. And um, I'm telling you, God will use you. <laughs> um, I say that, I say that as an editor and um, I, I know it. That's the way I want to write books. I want to write books for the average person in the pew because, you know, they're, they're probably the most neglected audience in the church today. 
I know that's a, a I know that's a large claim to make, but uh, in terms of what I mean is sound for sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, rich, you know, in Protestant Reformational theology that, that they're neglected. So they uh, we need more writing and writers writing for for the average person in the pew from for, with uh, sound theology in mind. continuing to to grow in that is is a good thing i mean that that's all we can do is is keep growing and keep honing our craft and growing in the grace of god so that those are good sure. things um how did how did jc ryle deal with controversy and how can his example instruct christians to handle controversy today well you know it's a, I, I think we live in a day when we are tempted to almost throw up our hands say well with me because like every few years a new a new theological controversy comes along and we any of us think oh goodness another one like think about the times in which Ryle lived right he was born in 1816 and died in 1900 um, he lived to see the emergence of Anglo-Catholicism or ritualism he dealt with that uh, he lived to see the rise of Darwin and Darwinism in 1859 he lived to see the emergence of higher criticism of the Old Testament in the 1860s uh, with essays and reviews um, I mean, he, he literally lived through a term, I mean, so much, so much controversy, and that's just kind of the big one. I mean, there's all sorts of small ones about what ministers should wear. That's kind of a Church of England issue, but it was related to ritualism and to the symbolism behind it. Um, he, was, he got involved in disestablishment controversy between dissenters and churchmen. He got involved, he was involved in, in all sorts of things. But if you look at, if you kind of were to take his, his controversial writings against the ritualists, against the neologians, those who would deny the, the inspiration and the errancy of the Old Testament, or even the Catholic spirituality, which is what gave birth to holiness, you'll see there, I think, two things. You'll see a, concern, a pastor's heart. So he's always concerned with, with how what you believe affects the way you live for the Lord and affects your, your growth in grace. But I also think you also see just what does this mean for Christ? How does this impact Christ? So if you were to look at his critique of auricular confession, you know, his, he could say many things historically. He could point to reformers and some of their, and he does from time to time, but his, his big issue with, with auricular confession is that it puts a, another mediator between Christ and a heavy-laden sinner. Right? 
if you look at his critique of the real present, I mean, there's so much constant theology that he could look back to, and he does, but he's really concerned with if the doctrine of the real presence is true, then that destroys the humanity of Christ, or the real humanity of Christ. If eternal punishment, that's another issue he dealt with, if eternal punishment is is not true, if immortality is conditional, how does that impact the work of Christ and its efficiency, and also, consequently, the um, what? how does that reflect upon the sinfulness of sin, and and the length that God had to go to through Christ to atone for it. Um, and even Celtic theology, or Celtic spirituality, which occasioned holiness, you know, as you look through his critique of that, in, in certain places in that book, you'll see that, that their view of sin is too low. If your view of sin is too low, then that will lower your view of Christ as well. So I think mm-hmm. as, you, as, as we think about Ryle's engagement and the, and the plethora of controversies that, that he was involved in, it always comes down to two issues, pastoral concern and Christological concern, or pastoral concern and concern to maintain the honor and glory of, of Christ and the integrity of the gospel at the same time. Mm, that's really good. Really, really well said. Thank you. Well, J.C. Ryle's classic work on holiness is, is hugely influential, as we've talked about. How can J.C. Ryle's teaching on sanctification help Christians today? podcast on, on, on this. Uh, like you said, you've read it many times, and, and many people who I meet that uh, like Ryle, that's the one book they've read over and over and over again. You know, I think as what holiness does, again, he's, Ryle's not doing something new. Look at the footnotes in your book. They are, he is quoting and, uh, and citing Puritan author after Puritan author after Puritan author after Puritan author. So, so what Ryle does in part one is he basically presents us, you know, Holiness was originally published in two parts. Part one, which I think was the first seven chapters of the book, and then part two, which are all those sermons at, at, on the back half, uh, in, the, in the back end. And what he's doing there in the first half is kind of defining biblical spirituality, biblical sanctification for us. And he's borrowing heavily from the Puritans and to some degree from, from the Reformers. And then after that, you have all these sermons. And if you think, if you read through them, you'll start to discern patterns, right? The, the first few sermons there are about examples of holiness, right? You'll have Lot's wife, who is a negative example. That, that chapter, more than anything else, stands out to me. I mean, I can remember where I was when I first read that because I was, I was stunned and convicted and a bit scared based on the example of Lot's wife, which is exactly what I think he's supposed to do. It's supposed to, to shake us up and, and cause us, as Jesus said, to remember Lot's wife and, and the error she made and, and not to follow in her footsteps. Uh, but then he kind of works through positive examples as well and, and kind of moves on through a number of issues. Um, but when you think about more than anything, holiness helps us calibrate ourselves to the Christian life. You know, one of the things in ministry I'm sure you've encountered and I've encountered are people often get discouraged in the Christian life because they have false expectations. They think things, you know, after becoming a Christian, they expect, in one sense, a life of peace and ease. Well, you know, what does one of the chapters in the early chapters of holiness is fight. Right? Ryle called us to anticipate in the Christian life, not peace and ease, but a fight, which is nothing different than what Peter tells us in First Peter. You know, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. It's necessary. It's normal. That's normal Christian life. And so I think what holiness does um, is it helps us calibrate ourselves to biblical expectations about living the Christian life. This is, this is what it is. This is how it begins. This is how it progresses. This is what you'll meet with. These are the struggles you'll face. These are some of the 
hindrances, the difficulties of it, um, and here's some helps along the way. And I think Christians have, that's resonated with believers for um, for hundreds of years, or for the last hundred years. And that, that was one of the problems with Keswick theology that occasioned the book in the first place. You know, Rao looks at it, and he and as he thinks through what they're teaching, you know, they're, they're saying that if you have this second sort of conversion experience, you can be totally consecrated to God, and you can live free from all known sin for, for weeks and months and years. So I think, you know, that's what I think drove J.I. Packer. Uh, it, it really gave him a hard time. And so the mortification of sin and holiness helped deliver him from these false expectations because he wondered, well, if you can be delivered completely from all known sin, then why, why am I not being delivered from it? He's, he's sensitive to his conscience and listens to it. He knows these sins. Why can't he, he essentially live in an unbroken communion with God? And that book, I think, helped him and helped others, helped me, perhaps helped you calibrate your heart, your soul, your expectations to that what the Christian life really is and um, and will be as opposed to kind of fanciful versions of what, um, what it's not. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. Um, one thing that stood out to me in reading it is there's a lot of people that, a lot of Christians that struggle, as you know, no doubt with assurance. And what he talks about, about assurance, just so helpful. Um, and I'm not sure if this is direct quote or whatever Dave's paraphrase or probably Dave's paraphrase but um, he uh, he talks about you know if there's even the tiniest sliver of tiniest tiniest of sliver of, of growth and grace you know you you can have assurance of your salvation and sure I think that that is just so helpful because we tend to think, well, if there's not this amount of assurance or this amount of growth in in grace over over time, and he is talking about time over time, so he's taking a long view of sanctification, um, that, you know, you can have, you can have assurance of your salvation if there's even the tiniest sliver. And I think that that's really instructive because we have people that think, well, I've done X number of thing in my Christian life, and, and so God no longer loves me and you know we have we have people that don't understand the difference between and let me be let me spell this out just a little bit here um the difference between our security in christ how we're paul talks about that over and over again in romans 8 31 through 39 and the difference between our fellowship with god being broken because of our our sin now we know that we know that our security in christ is is we're, we're completely and totally secure because of the finished and sufficient work finished and sufficient work of christ but our fellowship with god God, it can be broken. That's why we have to confess our sin. That's that's why we need to daily repent of our of our sin. And that's why I think that uh, J.C. Ryle is so important because he helps us to to begin to think in these biblical categories about you know we we think well we live in this culture that is so fast and we can go to McDonald's and Jack in the Box and parties and get go through our food and so we are, get our food and so we microwave our our spirituality in the same way and when J.C. Ryle says things like, you know, there's if, if there's even the tiniest sliver of growth and grace, that that actually should be tremendously encouraging to us because it helps us to to see it as as God does, you know, taking the long view of of, of salvation through the, our whole life, not just in this moment. Sure. In that book, you know, one of the things that struck me when I went through it is that as dealing with assurance, he said that the Christian Christians can know can have assurance not just by their victories, but by their conflict, by the fact that they are fighting them, by the fact that they are bothered by their lack of progress and death. And that there is an inward conflict going on. I mean, that's, you know, I would say those are evidences too. Um, but, you know, perhaps my favorite chapter of the whole book is the last one, which is titled Christ is All. Mm. So you have, you have in, in that book, you have the objective 
grounds of our assurance. Uh, I strongly affirm that the as the more subject uh, as well. And so it's such a it's such a well balanced book. It's so uh, you found it helpful. I found it helpful. So many people have for these these it's it's past it's just pastorally sensitive. But it also challenges too. And that's one of the things, especially when I when I've uh, taught it to, to others. I, I like the fact that Ryle isn't merely describing holiness and what it looks like, but he's summoning us to it. And he's challenging us to to pursue it more faithfully, more fervently, uh, and in helpful and biblical ways, and not in unhelpful and unbiblical ways. So just a, it's a masterpiece. Um, yeah. In many respects, I think it's progress stated proposition. Mm, that's really well said. Do we again need men like J.C. Ryle, and what would they look like in terms of their character and ministry? Ooh, well, the answer, I think, is yes. We certainly do need more men like J.C. Ryle. Um, what their ministry would look like, I think, first of all, Ryle would, we've been talking about holiness, he would say, your character matters so much, and who you are as a disciple, as a believer, as someone who loves and trusts the Lord matters far more uh, than your success does, um, or your outward success. So I think if, if the Lord would raise up more men like J.C. Ryle, I think they would be men who would be uh, men who pursue holiness wholeheartedly. And they would do so in a very simple, ordinary way. And if you read holiness or other books, Ryle is, is not calling us to, to go to a revival service. He's not calling us to go to mass meetings. In fact, Ryle said holiness, but it's far easier to be a Christian in a mass meeting than it is to be an ordinary means of grace believer, one who faithfully attends church, one who's faithfully devoted to to prayer, to Bible reading. I mean, I mean, just look at the opening chapters of Practical Religion or Old Path. I mean, they're calling believers to a very regular, ordinary, but outstanding thing. There's, you know, devotion to Christ in His Word, devotion to the Lord in prayer, regular church attendance, uh, participating in the sacramental life of the church, of just normal, tried and true sorts of means of grace ministry. So I think on one hand, Ryle would raise the Lord, if the Lord were raising up more Ryles, I think that would be evident by raising up uh, men and ministers and regular ordinary believers whose spiritual diet consists of large helpings of ordinary means of grace. Worship, preaching, the Bible, prayer, Christian fellowship, memorizing scripture, uh, the, the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper, those sorts of things. Um, now, if the Lord raised up men of that character, what might their ministries look like? Well, I think that they would be ministries that would be focused on a simple um, means of grace approach to the Christian life and relying on um, those for growth and health and life. Um, so I think that would be kind of another piece of that. Uh, one of the most outstanding, one of the things that about Ryle that's so evident when you get to know him better is that he was a controversialist. He, he did speak the hard issues, uh, but he did so in remarkable ways. So one of the things that, that I'm amazed about, the more I get to know Ryle, is that, that Ryle was often criticized by name in other people's publications. So I like Spurgeon, but in The Sword and the Trial, Spurgeon will call out Ryle by name and, and um, attack him by name over disestablishment controversy, things like that, right? He will be, others will write things about him, will publish letters against him or works in response to him. Well, 
you know, one of the things about Ryle's controversial writings is that you'll almost never see a name of an opponent unless he's praising them. So he's, he's not a personal attacker. He is constantly addressing ideas. And, you know, I think of, um, he, he interacted with one ritualist named Frederick Littledale, but he praises him. He says, look, I, you know, I totally disagree with Littledale. All of, all my readers will know this, but I thank, I thank, uh, you know, Reverend Littledale for getting to the heart of the matter, right? He, 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 he was very forthright in, in presenting his criticism of reformers. That's what doing. Um, and so he appreciated that he didn't, you know, mince words and got right to it. So I thought Ryle had a remarkable ability to be involved in, a co- in controversy and to write controversial things, but to do so in a in a way that, that didn't attack other people. Um, and uh, even though he, even as he was was being attacked by name um, by others. So you know, if you think about what kind, what a modern Ryle might look like, a man of holiness, a man of a normal means of grace ministry, but also someone who wasn't afraid to address the depressing spiritual and theological issues of the day, but would do so in a, a bold, uh, in a faithful, but also in a, a godly and, um, and and impersonal sort of way. And I think that if you look at Victorian polemics, they often descend into name-calling, things like that. Ryle manages to stay above it, even though nobody gets, nobody, even Jonathan Anglican that I'm aware of gets attacked more than does during his lifetime um, in those sorts of ways. I mean, he, he, he married and buried three wives during his lifetime. And even as a bishop, uh, his opponents were, were kind of making fun of, uh, you, you know, which, which, which husband would he be in heaven, that sort of thing, which is it's a really low blow. Um, but he stayed above the fray in that way. So that, that's what I think. I think he would, um, men are devoted to holiness, men are devoted to means of grace ministry, um, men who are concerned about the, the health of the church and respond to the controversy, but do so in a God-honoring way and uh, and don't dishonor the Lord through through personal attacks and and uh, just ungodly behavior as they do it. Yeah, that's really well said. Well, Ben, as we wrap up this conversation, and it's been a really good one so far, um, can you uh, give us a few takeaways about J.C. Ryle that you would have for our listeners? Sure. Sure. Well, I, I would commend Ryle to you. Um, I think his life is deeply instructive. Um, I would uh, commend his works to you. I think that they're they're solid, they're valuable, um, they're health giving, life giving, they're Christ honoring. Uh, I'm more and more I'm impressed with Ryle as a communicator, and I think as, as someone who preaches and teaches regularly. There's so little time in my life, and perhaps in yours as well, um, to actually work on communication and to work on becoming a better preacher, a better writer, a better speaker, a better teacher. I think Ryle just has a lot to, to help. I think he can help us today quite a bit by looking at not just reading his writings for your own soul, which you should do, but also reading them as a model of clear clear communication um, and also a holy boldness. I mean, one of the things that makes Ryle so distinct is that he never says we or us or things like that. He's always writing you, 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 because that's, that's what he means. He's addressing the reader as an individual you with individual sins who needs Christ to, to rescue them from the column penalty of sin individually. And so I think that, that as a communicator, he has a lot to teach us. Of course, as a theologian, he is, he, I, th- I think, you know, if you're, if you're going to encourage someone to study the purest, Ryle, especially a young person maybe who, who might stumble over some of the language of a John Owen or even a John Bunyan at certain points, you know, Ryle's just a great entry to spirituality in a, in a, easily, in a easily readable form. Um, 
I think those would be the big takeaways. Communicate. He's good for your soul. He's good for your uh, practice of ministry as a as a communicator. Yeah, I agree. Especially the boldness part. I mean, the whole the what you said is is throughout is is really helpful. But I'm just reminded of just how bold he is in sharing his faith. He's he's not concerned with what what other people think per se. Although he is, you know, obviously he obviously loves people and says it because he loves you know god and truth but uh and and people but uh just his holy boldness as you said that that's just so well said and ben i, I really appreciate the the time that you've given to me to talk about jc ryle I'm, I'm a huge fan of him um your your book uh tender lion the life ministry and message of jc ryle is is very well written and i would commend it to our listeners so thank you so much for your time today brother well thank you i enjoyed talking to uh to you about ryle and his works and his life Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.